All right, Anthem Church, welcome. Good to be with you together in this format. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and we've got a handful of things going on today, and uh, Eric's going to be teaching in just a minute, but I want to share with you a few things that are coming up. One, what's happening this evening, 4 p.m., we are gathering for our time of worship and prayer uh, and testimony tonight. So tonight is Palm Sunday, and we've been fasting throughout this month, and our time of testimony is going to be surrounded around what our experience was like in the fast. And so uh, we would love for you to come to share something. What was it like? Was it really hard? Was it really challenging? Did you feel like God spoke to you? What do you think about fasting in general? Is fasting something perhaps that you're interested in continuing on uh, doing weekly with your community group? I don't know. We'd love to hear how God has stirred in you? Did he show you some things? Did he reveal some things to you? Or what was intimacy with God like in that space and time as you fasted this last month? So come ready to share this evening at 4 p.m. at the Baptist Church. We're looking forward to being there and being together. The other thing coming up is we have Good Friday. Good Friday is going to be at 6 p.m. in person at the Bocox Place. So here's a few things that are really important. One, we need you guys to register. We're limiting our spots to 100, uh, and we will put and have a waiting list. We're actually renting tables and chairs. Uh, we're going to be covering them with butcher paper. We're going to be walking through our Stations of the Cross together. It is a family-style gathering, so our kids will be with us, and we want to invite you to come. This is a fantastic opportunity to train and disciple your children as to why the cross is so significant. Just as far as expectations go, it's important to know that we're going to be following basically restaurant style guidelines. And so we're going to ask, just like we normally do, that you wear a mask coming, going, and while mingling. Once you get to your table, however, you're free to take that off. We just ask that you be really considerate of those who are at the table with you. If some at the table would prefer that mask stay on, would you be willing, like we learn in Philippians, to consider their needs more significant than ourselves? And would we be willing to keep them on? Uh, if you need a little bit extra space, you're more than welcome to scoot away from the table a little bit. But we just share all of this because we want expectations to be clear. So we're really excited about this opportunity, and we hope that you could come and join us. So remember, that is 6 p.m. at the Bocox. All you need to do is bring yourself. It will be a little bit chilly, most likely, by the time we're done. Uh, but uh, we want to make sure that you're ready and able to come and join us. However, if you're unable to do so, uh, we do have a 8 p.m. Stations of the Cross uh, Zoom available. We will be gathering online at 8 p.m. to walk through the Stations of the Cross together that way as well. So this way, there's nobody that gets missed and that we're all able to celebrate and practice Good Friday together. So we're looking forward to that time together, and we uh, can't wait to see you. Hopefully, we'll see you this afternoon. That's Sunday at 4 p.m. at the Baptist Church. And with that, we're going to hand it over to Eric, and he's going to take us through our teaching today. Well, good morning, Anthem. Uh, if you didn't know, today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. Uh, and it's the day that around the country, in a lot of churches, little kids will march down the aisle of their church, waving palm branches, trying not to poke anyone in the eye, screaming, Hosanna! And then they get up on stage and look cute and sing some song with the word Hosanna in it. And a lot of people who've been around church for a while, they know that this happens, but they may not necessarily know why this happens or, or what it means. These Palm Sunday celebrations 
are intended to commemorate what is called the triumphal entry. The day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds went nuts, waving palm branches and, and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds saw Jesus as the one who would bring salvation. Here was the son of David that would save them. And five days later on the cross, he would, just not in the way that they expected. But this wasn't the first time that a procession like this happened, as there was a triumphal entry in Jerusalem that took place almost 200 years before uh, with the Maccabean Revolt. Okay, a little history lesson for you. After Alexander the Great's empire uh, got carved up into four pieces, uh, a Syrian ruler named Antiochus uh, came in. He, he was ruling over Judea, and he killed thousands of Jews. He was a brutal dude. Uh, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, and he even made the priests eat of the pig's flesh, uh, which obviously is not kosher. It was, it was brutal. Well, there was this family, the Hasmoneans, who, who led a revolt, and one of the, the sons, a priest named Judas Maccabeus, led the people of Israel in a revolt against this Greek occupation. And he cleansed the temple by kicking out the Gentiles and, and re-consecrating uh, the temple after it had been defiled. This is the event that is celebrated uh, in the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Well, his brother Simon completed the revolution and when he did rode into Jerusalem on this giant war horse and, and the people of the crowd celebrated his victory by waving palm branches and crying out, you know, for his victory. This became so important that the image of palm branches would be stamped onto their coins to commemorate this victory. Well, fast forward to Palm Sunday. It was Passover week, so the population of Jerusalem would have swelled upwards of one or two million people in the city and the surrounding area. And here's Jesus, having raised Lazarus from the dead, having performed lots of miracles. Here he comes, and the crowds are ready to declare again, Hosanna. It would have been quite a scene. You know, the cries at Palm Sunday, their, their cries of Hosanna, they came from Psalm 118. The word Hosanna means, Lord, save us. But the theological freight of, of what they're crying out, it comes from the passage that we are going to look at this morning. In Matthew's account of Palm Sunday, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, that longing for a son of David, it originates, as we're going to see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God's covenant with David, which we're going to unpack together. Now, as a church, we have been taking about four weeks to look forward uh, to Good Friday in Easter. And as we do, take a kind of flyover of the Old Testament, hitting some of the, the most important episodes along the way in order to help us kind of put the story together leading up to Jesus. So in week one, we saw Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw the fall. And then this, this promise of a son of the woman who would come and crush the head of the snake. In week two, we saw Abraham and his calling. We heard about, heard about God's plan of redemption that would start with Abraham. And from his offspring, God would save the world and bless the nations. Last week, we looked at the Exodus and we saw the shape of our salvation as God brought the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. But even Israel needed a substitute, a lamb, to die in their place so that they could be saved. Well, finally this week, we'll be looking God's covenant with David. And what we'll see is that just as Jesus was the fulfillment of Adam and Eve's longings and promises, just as he was the fulfillment of 
Abraham's calling, just as he is the fulfillment of the Passover, Jesus will be the fulfillment of the promises to David. Now, before we read, let me fill in the gaps of the story, okay? Kevin did a little bit of this last week, and I'm going to keep pushing the ball forward. Abraham's family, they go down into Egypt, okay? This family of 70 uh, spends 400 years there, and they become a giant nation, okay? They are very fruitful, and they're multiplying, uh, and, but things for Israel get bad. So God saves them out of slavery at the Exodus, and after wandering in the desert for 40 years, Joshua finally leads the people into the land, the promised land. They get settled, but then they struggle uh, to remain faithful to God. And they go through this cycle in the period of the judges where they, they succumb, they give in to idolatry. And so then they're given over to their enemies, at which point they cry out for salvation. And God raises up a judge to save them and, and kind of put them back on the path of, of faithfulness with God. And then this cycles over and over and over again until finally the people cry out for a king. They want a permanent king, even though God was supposed to be their king. So God gives them Saul. Now Saul, he looks the part, uh, but he proves unworthy, and eventually God takes the kingdom from Saul, and he finally gives it to this little shepherd boy named David, who, in God's power, as you know, slays the giant Goliath. Okay, you got all that? You feel brought up to speed? Let's dive in. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, and pick up the story with David after God has established his kingdom. So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give him thanks for it. Father God, we speak now, or we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Would you, God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, would you shine into our hearts, letting us see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is so fun. There's a lot of wordplay in use with that word house. Uh, and there's the question of the builder. Who is the one who's going to do it? Now, we'll see these ideas and these questions come up a couple times, but we're going to look at this passage along three lines. We're going to see the Lord's faithfulness to David, the Lord's promise to David, and the Lord's son of David. Okay, those are our three lines. Let's dive into part one, the Lord's faithfulness to David. Our passage opens uh, with David's desire to build a house or a temple for the ark of God to dwell in. Verse one says that, that David lived uh, in his house and the Lord gave him rest. Okay, he's had a nice, established, stable place in his monarchy. He's had success and victory. And now he has a moment to breathe and he realizes, here I am living in this palace, but God's presence via the ark, it dwells in a tent. Or as the Hebrew literally says, in, in a house of curtains. You know, it's the opposite of what we Americans do with our dogs. You know what I'm talking about? You know, we eat top ramen and cup of noodles so that we can afford to feed our pets salmon and sweet potatoes and avocado. It's completely silly and backwards. But here, David thinks that the tabernacle is, is kind of shabby compared to his palace. So David has it in his mind. He wants to build a temple for God's presence. But God has something else in mind. Through the prophet Nathan, he begins to explain to David that he's never lived in a house of cedar, you know, a, a temple, but moved about in a tabernacle with the people from Sinai through the period of the judges until now. And he never asked any of them to build this house of cedar. But then God recounts his faithfulness to David. He is the one who made David king. And he has been with David everywhere that he has gone. And he has given him victory. And he is giving him a great name among the great ones. Maybe you hear there an allusion to, to Abraham and God's promise to make his name great. Well, he's going to do the same thing for David. But the emphasis through this section is on what the Lord has done. David says, I'm going to do this thing for you, God. And God says, no, 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 David, you're missing the point. Look at everything that I have done for you. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to envision a scenario where David is maybe slipping into a, a religious or a contractual mode. And he's thinking, you know, if I, if I do this thing for God, he will continue to give me favor. If I, if I build him a house and make his dwelling permanent, well, then he can't leave. And God will be kind of obligated to continue to bless us. Again, the passage doesn't tell us that this is what David is thinking. But we know it's not that far of a leap because this is how we all treat so many relationships. You know, we can't help it. But our sinful tendency is to turn almost every relationship into a series of obligations. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You do this thing for me, I'll do this thing for you. You know, my wife changed the last diaper, so now it's my turn. Unless I kind of run away and let her discover this. Not that any of you have ever done that. 
You know, we are creatures that both long to be loved unconditionally and yet almost uncontrollably put conditions on everyone and everything. And we do this with God as well. You know, we think that if we do a few religious things, well, then we'll put him in our pocket. If, if we, you know, we faithfully read our Bibles and we, you know, show up to church maybe, you know, at least two times a month and, and we participate in this fast, you know, if we do these things for God, well, then he owes us. And so any and all hardship that we endure, it becomes grounds for questioning God and his goodness because hello, God, look at my ledger. You owe me. But God comes along and says, David, let me remind you how this works. I don't need a house. And I am the one who has brought you thus far. I am the initiator in this relationship. You know, the Ten Commandments, they follow the rescue from slavery. The law, it follows the exodus. And David's faithfulness follows, it's always in response to God's prior faithfulness. We love because he first loved us. Well, God does not stop there reminding David of his faithfulness because after this gentle reminder, he goes further, which brings us to our second part, the Lord's promise to David. In verse 10, God turns to the future and he begins to promise some amazing things to David. Look at it. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. We may hear kind of allusions there to the garden. It's as if God, God's people are going to return to paradise. They'll be planted. They'll have shalom, peace from their enemies. But then in verses 11 and 12, God flips David's intention on its head. Look at it. Moreover, the Lord says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. See, in this wonderful play on words, the Lord says, you won't build me a house as in a temple, but I will make you a house as in a dynasty. God is going to establish David's dynasty so that the kingdom will always belong to his offspring, his family. And if you read 1 and 2 Kings, there are many places where God is faithful to the progeny of David, not because they are good, but because of his promise to David. Now, the, the promises continue here. God throws another curveball. David doesn't get to build the house, but it's David's son who will. And God will treat this future king as his own son, disciplining him if necessary for any wayward behavior, but God won't ever break this covenant. The kingdom is with David's family forever. Now, these promises are known as God's covenant with David, and they get alluded to and riffed on throughout the prophets when they push the expectations for what God will do to, to epic cosmic proportions. Well, these promises, they are fulfilled proximately and partially in the next generation with David's son, Solomon. Solomon does build the temple for God and God's glory comes down and fills the temple and you know, people fall on their face and they're, they're crying out this amazing moment. You know, God is in the building. Uh, but not only this, Solomon's very name means peace. It's from the same word, uh, the same root as the word shalom. And Solomon has peace. He does not have to fight battles like his father, David. And there's a sense in which the promises made here seem fulfilled in Solomon. But whatever 
peace and prosperity Solomon had, it was not because of the presence of the temple. Because when Solomon turned from God and fell into idolatry, enemies once again rose up against Israel. And in the next generation, the kingdom was torn in two. The Lord's discipline was severe. And the stripes of men, it says, were inflicted on the nation. Again, if you read First and Second Kings and the story of the nation all the way up to the point of exile, there's this question. Will they respond to the Lord's discipline and return to serving him faithfully? Or will they do eyes, excuse me, do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Solomon and the other kings from the line of David, they left the people still longing, longing for peace, longing for restoration, longing for the dwelling place of God and intimacy with him, longing for the permanence of a forever king. I wonder if you feel that longing. It's not hard to look out in our world and have a sense that the world is longing for these promises to be fulfilled. I mean, they may not be able to connect the dots or name it as such, but don't you think there are many people who like the idea of being planted, of being rooted somewhere in their own place to be disturbed no more? I mean, imagine having a giant do not disturb button you can press. Not to silence the pain of the world so you don't have to hear about it, but to actually end it. To bring an end to all strife, to bring an end to violent men afflicting the world. Is there not a longing for peace, for shalom? So for Israel and for many in the world today, there's this lingering and ongoing question. When will the true son of David rise up to establish the everlasting kingdom? There remains a longing for the Lord's son of David, which is part three. Let's turn there. The Lord's son of David. About a thousand years after David, on a Sunday in Jerusalem, a man sitting astride the colt of a donkey made his way down the Mount of Olives into the city, and the crowds went crazy. Hosanna to the son of David! This is it! This is him! He's here, finally! On that Palm Sunday, the expectations created by the promises to David were coming out in the cries of the crowd. But when Jesus comes, his entry is quite surprising. You know, lest the crowds get worked up into an insurrectionist frenzy and, you know, viva la revolution, you know, Jesus starts doing things they don't expect, like riding in on a donkey and then going into town and, and cleansing the temple and even picking fights with the scribes and the Pharisees. They weren't ready for this. You know, Jesus comes to save the world, but he doesn't seem to be addressing the people's felt needs. You know, in their mind, they didn't need religious reform. I mean, the Sadducees, they had the temple, they had all the rituals on lockdown, you know. And the Pharisees, they had all the piety and the morality. They don't need their religion touched. No, they needed a political fix. They needed the Romans kicked out. Yet Jesus seems concerned with other things. He goes off script in, in notable ways. First, he's not like Simon Maccabeus riding in on a war horse. No, he's on a young colt of a donkey. This would be universally recognized, not as a symbol of power, but of humility. He's not coming to make war. So peace must come some other way. 
And the donkey isn't the only departure from the Maccabean model. You remember Judas Maccabeus, he cleansed the temple from the Gentile defilement. But when Jesus barnstorms Jerusalem and comes to town, he also marches right into the temple, but he cleanses it by clearing out the money changers and the sacrificial animals, declaring that his father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's for the Gentiles. Now think about these two actions, the donkey and the cleansing, because they say more than we realize. Underneath that humble appearance of riding on a donkey, there's actually a subtle yet great power. I don't know what you know about animals, about livestock, but young horses and young donkeys aren't often calm and peaceful creatures, especially when there's large crowds screaming and waving palm branches. Okay, unbroken animals don't walk peacefully in parades. I remember uh, as a 12-year-old being thrown from a horse because as we were walking along the trail, my horse stepped on a palm branch and it came flying up and the horse got spooked and just tossed me, sent me flying into a tree, knocked the wind out of me. You know, young animals like that are skittish. But here's Jesus riding on a young donkey and all is calm. You know, though humble, this is also a symbol of peace and control over the created order. Again, we might think back to the garden, our longing for restoration to paradise and a restoration of the created order. Here is Jesus demonstrating he is the one who can do it. And Jesus cleansing the temple is also a sign that points backwards. Again, think back to Abraham, the longing for the nations of the world to be brought back into relationship with God. And here is Jesus cleansing the temple, saying part of his mission is to reach the Gentiles, the nations. Jesus is the son of David. He's the king who will reign forever. And he's the son who will build God's house. But he goes about both of those things in unexpected ways. You know, he's going to build the house. But Jesus came first to be God's house and then to build God's house. Jesus came to be the true temple, the true house of God, the place where God's presence touches earth. We'll see this in the book of John when we start it in a couple weeks after Easter. But he came and it says he tabernacled among us. He was the presence of God on earth. And then he gets in this skirmish and he says, tear down this temple and in three days he will rebuild it. He'll raise it up again. Speaking of the temple of his body. And then right before he's going to go to the cross, before he dies, he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, meaning himself in which we can abide. We're called to abide in him. He is God's house. But then he builds God's house. It is in union with him that God's house is built up. So we read this last fall in 1 Peter that Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone that the builders rejected, but upon him, we, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians. He says that the church is God's temple, and that his spirit dwells in y'all. Jesus is building God's house like the son of David said, was said to do. But it's so different than what the crowds could possibly imagine. God's spirit would come down and dwell with them. God would be in the building. But the building would be us. It's wild. Jesus is the son who is building God's house. But he's also the king who will reign forever. But this kingdom, his kingdom that is, is coming, 
it is being established in likewise shocking ways. The crowds, they didn't understand or they didn't remember their own history. That long line of kings, some bad, some good, it didn't fix their problem. You know, idolatry was always only a generation away, and sin and rebellion were always ready to break out. The political fix didn't fix their problems because it didn't fix their hearts. And friends, so it is with us. You know, our nation, our community, maybe your family is fractured because we can't agree on the right political fix. We have real problems, okay, that create real suffering and real heartache. And I think there are some policies that are better than others at at least mediating some of these problems. But our inability to even talk about these things points to a deeper problem and a deeper need. But the crowds didn't want to hear it. And sadly, neither do we. You know, we might look at those crowds with the palm branches and wonder, you know, how can that celebration on Sunday, Hosanna, turn so quickly so that by Friday they're condemning him and yelling crucify? How can that be? How could they be so fickle? But then... We put ourselves in their shoes and, and we see Jesus, you know, unassuming, riding into town on this donkey. Clip, clop, clip, clop. But he doesn't just want to address the problems out there. He says, there's a problem in here. And then we kind of begin to get it. You know, the crowds, they were, they were fine with a political fix and we'd be fine with a political fix. But touching my heart, no, that's too close to home. You know, I'm fine with Jesus, with you fixing those people out there, but you can go ahead and leave me alone, all right? Thank you very much. But here comes Jesus. Clip, clop, clip, clop. You know, we look at him and we're like, hey, you can leave my wallet out of this. You can leave my bedroom out of this. You can leave my words, how I use them, out of this. Jesus, don't you dare mention my anger. Don't mention my greed. Don't mention my lust. Don't mention my envy or my resentment or my hatred. And he's still coming. Clip, clop, clip, clop. And as he approaches, you know what? We start to think someone should do something about this guy. See, it's not that hard for us to go from Hosanna to crucify ourselves. When Jesus rides in and shines a light into the dark recesses of our hearts, we recoil and the guttural sounds come to our lips, crucify. But like the crowds, we don't realize that that is exactly where he is headed. That is how the son of David will establish his kingdom. Not with a scepter or a sword, but with nails in his hands and a spear in his side. Not with a crown of glory, but with a crown of thorns not by ascending a throne, but by ascending a hill on a cross. Clip, clop, clip, clop. He rides on towards his death for us. Jesus was establishing a kingdom, not by killing the Romans, but instead by being killed by them. It's so counterintuitive. You know, their issue and our issue is that we have hearts that are enslaved to sin. 
And to be set free, we need a sacrifice on our behalf. Like at the Exodus, there's the need for a bloody substitute. To be saved, a lamb would have to die instead of them, and so with us. But we can, we can hear our misunderstanding in the sneering crowds as Jesus died. You know, when they mock him on the cross, they taunt his claim to be the son of David. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down. You know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down and we will believe. They didn't understand that they would be saved by the temple being destroyed and raised in three days. They didn't understand that they would be saved by the son of God staying up on that cross, not coming down. They didn't understand that the king of Israel would save others by not being saved himself. You know, God promised to David that his son would be like a son to God and would receive God's discipline when necessary. But in Jesus, we have a perfect son, one that does not need discipline for his own sake, and yet he takes it nonetheless for our sake. And in Jesus, here is the son taking the rod, taking the stripes for us. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. The Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's promise come together in the Lord's son of David. On this Palm Sunday, do you hear the cries of the crowds? Hosanna, Lord, save us. Do you hear their longing and their cries? Do you hear their anguish? Do you hear their hope? Clip, clop, clip, clop. Can you see Jesus on the donkey? Do you see the shocking humility yet understated power? Do you see where he's headed? And do you know that he's headed there for you? It's not enough to see and to hear. It's not enough even to now understand what it all means. He didn't come down from the cross. And he didn't so that you might believe. He stayed and he suffered and he died that you might believe be saved. Let me pray. God, as we bring this, this series of looking forward to Easter, anticipating Easter to a close, God, we, we pray that we would see and we would hear all that you would have for us from this story. As we've tried to, to, to weave and pull different threads together, different parts of the story together leading up to Jesus, God, don't let us miss Jesus. <laughs> Would we understand that it all leads to him? That your glory is seen in him. And God, having seen it, I pray that we would, we would put our trust in it. We'd put our trust in him. Father God, if there's any that are, that are listening or watching this this morning that do not know you, I pray that even this morning or this afternoon or whenever it's happening, and that even now you would do a work 
and beckoning them to yourself. God, this Easter, we, we don't just want to, to celebrate the details of the story. We want to be changed. Do a work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.